0: Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. This is the word of God. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was said by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, more precious than gold, as the psalmist says, much fine gold, and sweeter to our taste than even the honeycomb is. Father, I ask today as we come to you, God, with thirsty souls that can only be satisfied, God, by drinking, God, from the fountain of life that is you. I pray, Father, that you would satisfy our hearts, God, with yourself. I pray, Father, that you would come and that your presence would be with us. Just as your presence was with the Israelites as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, I pray, Father, that you would be with us as well, God, and give us guidance. Show us, God, how we are to live in a world, O God, that pulls us in thousands of different directions, with philosophies, job offers, all these different things, but what we need, O God, to live life. Father, we know that you are the way, the truth, and the life, so I ask God, speak to us today. I've written words here today, but God, these words are worthless unless your spirit speaks. So speak, Holy Spirit, for your servants here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, this week I uh, had a conversation with a non-Christian. And as is usual, many of them, after seeing the ring on my finger, realized that I was once an engineer before I became a pastor. And invariably the question is, uh, you know, why did you make the switch? Now, one of the things that I ended up talking about this week was, as a pastor, what did I think was the difference, you know, between being an engineering and being a pastor? It said, I used to teach in both. I used to teach, uh, be a TA, and I would teach undergraduate students about things about math and matrices and computer graphics and whatever else I was required to teach. And I was asked, what's the difference between teaching in that setting with a bunch of students and teaching every Sunday as you do now? And I thought about it, you know, I thought, like, what is the difference, actually, between the two? And as I sat there and I I answered uh, her, I told her that I think this is what the difference is, is that when I was in college and I taught things to people, I taught them things that I thought were important to a very specific group of people, and it was up to them to decide what they would do with that information at the end of the day. It didn't bother me whether they cared about it or not. In church, though, the difference is that when I get up to preach on Sundays, I'm being a herald instead for God. I declare to people things that God says are important, and I don't do this just for a select group of people who like math, but all sorts of people who come to hear the Word of God. And I do this for all people, not just a specific group of people, and I call them to the demands of King Jesus. And... I don't just say it's optional whether you want to obey this, but it's obligatory on you because this is the Word of God. There's a huge difference between teaching in academia and teaching every Sunday from the pulpit and daily in the lives of Christians and people who want to know about Jesus. You know, the person of Jesus Christ is such an influential figure when you look at human history. In fact, we even restarted the calendar to coincide with the time that he was born. Now, when I talk to people about Jesus, you get all sorts of responses out in the world. You talk to Jews, for instance, about Jesus, and many of them will say that Jesus was a false messiah because he did not meet the expectations of what the Jewish people thought he would do. He didn't fix what was wrong with the world, and he simply died, so there's no way he could be the messiah. You talk to Muslims, for instance, and they will say that Jesus, he was a great prophet and definitely had a special message from God, but certainly not the divine son of God. Impossible. You talk to moralists in our world, and they will say that the message of Jesus really was one of love and peace and kindness and how to be a better you. You talk to uh, people in our Vancouver society, and they have all sorts of different opinions on who Jesus is. My favorite, of course, is the guy who says that Jesus was actually like Gandhi. And I laugh right at that because I'm like, you you realize that Gandhi came 1900 years after Jesus, right? So if anything, Gandhi's tried to steal things from the life of Jesus, not the other way around. You know, uh, for skeptics in our society, and there are a lot, uh, Jesus is no more than a legendary figure who a bunch of people decided to believe in, either because they're not critical thinkers or because they need a crutch on which to stand on. So you take your pick. Everybody has a different opinion of who Jesus is, is. Now, for us as Christians who believe in the Bible and the Word of God, we would say that Jesus is the divine Son of God, fully God, fully man, who taught, of course, about love, peace, kindness, faith in himself, sin, hell, all these different topics. However, if you think about it, do you know what the main message of Jesus actually was? You know, the primary subject that Jesus taught on that he spoke on and preached regularly over and over again, was actually the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's actually the same thing. That was his number one topic. Now, this might even be surprising for mature Christians who've been in the faith for a long time, but it's true the new testament actually bears witness to is that this was actually the primary subject of jesus's preaching for example if you look in matthew's gospel alone and you look for that phrase the kingdom of heaven it appears some 30 and the kingdom of god the two phrases together appear over 37 times in just 28 chapters so it was constant in fact when you look at jesus's sermon on the mount In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, you learn about the type of people that belong in the kingdom. In Matthew 13, there's a whole chapter devoted to the parables that speak about what the kingdom is like. And then later, when you read the rest of Matthew, you discover when when Jesus talks about the kingdom, you realize the type of sacrifices and what people have to give up in order to be a part of this kingdom. So the kingdom is all throughout the gospel of Matthew and through the New Testament. And the book of Revelation ends with the kingdom of heaven now being the kingdom of God, being the kingdom of this world now as well. The two become one. So in today's message, I've broken up to three things. Uh, You can look in the back uh, of your outline there. There's three questions I'd like to answer that I think are posed to us by our text. And that is number one, what is the kingdom of heaven? Number two, who is the kingdom of heaven for? And the third thing is, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? Three questions that we're going to talk about today that I think come from our text. So, number one, what is the kingdom of heaven? Okay. So, verse 17 in our text begins this way. It says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, in order to understand this and to be able to answer that question, what is the kingdom of heaven, we need to know a bit about uh, what the Bible says it is. Now, when Jesus was preaching to his people and all of his audience, he didn't explain this, but in fact, he assumed that they knew what he was talking about. That's why he doesn't explain at all. Now, and the reason that they knew what it was is because for the Jews who were here to hear this great rabbi teach, they were familiar with the Old Testament and the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven finds its root in the pages of the scriptures. For example, if you read Jehoshaphat's prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6, it says this, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Now this verse and many other Old Testament verses affirm the idea that God is king over the whole earth and over the entire universe. And as king, he originally fashioned and created human beings to rule this earth on his behalf as king. So when you read at the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis chapter one, verse 26, which says this, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that is on the earth. When he wrote that, do you realize what human beings actually are? See, human beings, contrary to what our culture teaches, are not simply the products of mindless matter and chance, nor are human beings simply highly evolved animals. In fact, human beings, according to this text, were created to be royalty. Living images or living statues of the king of the universe who were to exercise his rulership and dominion over the entire earth and to reflect his greatness and his authority. We are vice regents ruling under the greatness of the king of all the earth. That's what we were supposed to be. See, and if that is what a human being actually is, you understand then why how a human being lives actually matters then in this world. You know, the news right now in B.C. is currently saturated with all these stories about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry who have settled uh, onto some island here in B.C. And I thought about that, and uh, I'm like, why do people write about this stuff all the time? Why does Buckingham Palace and the world care about what happens to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? And the answer to that is because they're royalty. They're royalty, Prince Harry was born a prince, and therefore his life's conduct directly affects how people think about the royal family and also his grandmother, Queen Elizabeth. Now, Prince Harry didn't choose to be born into the royal family. He didn't make that decision later into life. He was not adopted into that family. He was simply born into that family, and it's a reality he has to deal with. He might feel like, I never asked for paparazzi or photographers to chase me around all the time, but simply because he was born into that family, that's what he has to work with. And the same thing is true for us as human beings. We didn't get to decide where we were born, who our parents would be, the type of language we would speak. Yet at the same time, we were born into the royal family of the human race. We belong to that family because God crafted us in his own image, and it's a reality that you and I, just like Prince Harry, have to deal with every single day. And we are accountable for how our conduct reflects on the king. Now, in biblical history, the first royal couple, Adam and Eve, sinned, and they failed at their kingly duties to exercise God's reign over the earth, and also their descendants as well. So, Uh, it was an absolute failure. Human beings went into sin. There was the flood and so on. Bad history. Even when God decides to take the nation of Israel and said, I'm going to make you a holy nation of priests to serve me so that you might be an example to the rest of the world about how to live and show my greatness to the world, the people of Israel still failed. And their history over and over again shows how they actually made God look terrible in the eyes of the nations around them instead. Now, later Israel said that what our problem really is is that we need a king to rule over us, and they really rejected God as king. So God did give them a king. But you know what the history of kings is? Though they got the leader they thought that they wanted, the leaders of Israel, for the most part, were actually bad leaders and led them into further destruction, sin, and idolatry, resulting in them breaking the covenant of God and being carried away into exile later. And so uh, in slavery... You know, they think that all hope is lost because they've broken the terms of the covenant. But as we read the Bible, we realize in spite of this, God in his credible mercy still offers them hope. And he gives them a promise that one day he will put a final good king to reign on the throne forever who will make all things right. And you get a glimmer of this king and his kingdom in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 and 14, which reads like this. Daniel speaking, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, and nations, and languages should serve him. And this dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So in other words, this king will complete the job that Adam failed to do, and also all of his descendants, and he, this king will rule over the world in perfect peace. Habakkuk, also another prophet speaking about the king and the kingdom, says this, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, glory of the Lord as the waters cover over the sea. So what is the kingdom? The kingdom is this rule of God over the entire earth. Like I love how George Eldon Ladd defined the kingdom. I love this definition. I put it up here on the screen for you. The kingdom of God Is the redemptive reign of God, dynamically active to establish the rule among men, and that this kingdom, which will appear as an apocalyptic act at the end of the age, has already come into human history in the person and mission of Jesus to overcome evil, to deliver man from its power, and to bring them into the blessings of God's reign. See, that's what the kingdom of God is. It's this dynamic and active reign of God that's come in the person of Jesus, but will one day fully be fulfilled when the last day comes. So you see, when Jesus shows up in human history and he begins doing things like healing the sick, uh, doing miracles, driving out demons, preaching the good news, what you have here actually is a reversal of the effects of sin and the inauguration of the kingdom of God, which is going to eventually rule over the entire planet. So death Disease and human dysfunction are actually being undone and reversed. The curse of sin is being broken. So that's amazing, and that is good. And many of us will look at that and say, "Well, I like that. I like to live in a perfect world." But that leads us actually to another question, and that is number two, is who is the kingdom for? See, this is actually a really important question, because the coming of a king is not necessarily good news. For example, you look at the end of World War II and the people of Paris and France were living under German captivity and they heard that the Allies were coming to liberate Paris. Many of the people rejoiced and they cheered. But there was another group of French people who heard that and they were absolutely appalled at this. And these were all the people who had sold out and collaborated with the Germans actually. They were horrified because the arrival of the Allies meant that they were going to be destroyed, uh, bad things were going to happen to them. See, the point is, the coming of a king is not necessarily good news. It all depends on which side you're on. If you're on the king's side or if you're not on the king's side. Now, although verse 12 that we read in our text today comes right after verse 11, Jesus' wilderness testing, the truth is there's actually a very lengthy gap between verses 11 and 12, probably up to almost a year. And we don't have this in Matthew, but you actually find this documented in John chapter 1 to 4. Now, remember this, okay, Jesus did so many things that the gospel writers actually had to be very, very selective with the limited ink and parchment that they had about what they were going to write about in their specific gospel that Jesus did to make the points that they wanted to make in their gospel. So, when you read John 1 to 2.11, you find out this missing section in Matthew about what Jesus did in his very first week of ministry, And if we harmonize Matthew and John and put the two together, we realize that after Jesus' baptism and his time in the wilderness, he doesn't just head to Galilee right away. He actually returns to the Jordan River, according to John, and spends some time around John the Baptist, who starts directing his disciples to follow him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is actually where Jesus initially meets Peter, Andrew, and probably John, the gospel writer as well. Now, we know, actually, that Jesus' ministry probably spanned about three years. And we know this because when you read the Gospel of John, you realize that Jesus was present at three different Passover events, which were annual events in Jerusalem. So, approximately about three-ish, maybe three and a half-ish years of his ministry. So, scholars who study the Bible have broken down Jesus' ministry into three different types of years. The first year being the year of obscurity that we have documented in the Gospel of John. The second year is called his year of popularity, which we see for the most part in most of the Gospels accounts. And the third year is the year of animosity, the year in which he was crucified and the people who once loved him turned against him. Now, This is the section that's missing between Matthew chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. And John's gospel tells us that Jesus goes back to Galilee during that first week after spending some time with John. He performs his first miracle of turning water into wine. And then after some unknown amount of time, he goes back to Jerusalem to celebrate a Passover. And this is where he actually has the first cleansing of the temple, where he takes a whip and drives out the money changers who have made his father's house into a den of thieves. He starts baptizing people at this point, and John, interestingly enough, is actually baptizing the exact same time. Except what's happening is that John's ministry is decreasing, and Jesus' ministry is increasing. So as John's influence begins to wane, I think the Pharisees get bold and bolder with him, King Herod seizes the opportunity, he arrests John, and Jesus, growing in popularity, being the only one left on the scene, attracts the notice of the Pharisees who realize that he is baptizing more people than John, and in order to avoid trouble with the religious leaders of the day, Jesus moves away from Judea, up through Samaria, back up to Galilee. So he heads north instead and leaves behind the centers of power of Judaism. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but when you read John's gospel, you read about the account of Jesus passing through Samaria before he gets to Galilee. And this is the account of John chapter 4 of the woman at the well. Now, the Samaritan woman at the well, if you want to understand the story, you need to know a bit about the Samaritans. Okay, So in a nutshell, the Samaritans were the descendants of the northern tribes of Israel who were carried away into captivity, but they ended up intermarrying with all the different people that the Assyrians had resettled into the land. So they had some Jewish blood in their veins, but at the same time, because they were mixed, the Jewish people looked at them and considered them basically to be Gentiles. These were non-Jews living up north. And why this is so interesting is because Jesus, starting off his ministry, goes back to Galilee through Samaria, and he begins talking, actually, to Gentiles. Now, in our uh, text here, we learn, of course, that Jesus meets with the Samaritan woman and that a bunch of people actually come to believe in him as the savior of the world. Our text tells us that after his, uh, his ministry there in Samaria, he moves to the city of Capernaum there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now, this city, Capernaum, where Jesus does a lot of ministry and spends a lot of time, was a city that sat on a very important trade route, which we call the Via Maris, you know, that basically was a road between Egypt and Syria. So a lot of traffic passed through this area. Yet it's such a high Gentile population because of that, in addition to Jews, that's why the reference in our text here, Galilee of the Nations, actually makes sense because of all these Gentiles. Now, Matthew, as he's looking at what Jesus did in the past, realizes that this is actually a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, because Capernaum sits on the ancestral territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, which are often paired in the Old Testament. Now, the prophecy that Matthew points us to, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, is that of a great light, but it's a great light that's set in the context, uh, context of absolute misery, destruction, and judgment because of God's anger against the people for forsaking him. But right after 8.22, which talks about the darkness, chapter 9 is all about this prophecy of a child who's going to be born and who will be a wonderful counselor, an everlasting father, a prince of peace who's going to rule God's people forever. So after the darkness, there's great hope. Okay? The darkness in Naphtali and in Zebulun is going to give way to the hope of light in God's mercy. So, okay, why is all of this stuff actually important? Why am I spending so much time talking about this? Okay, because I want us to understand and see here where Matthew is going that ministry to non-Jews, to Gentiles, to the people of this world was not an afterthought, but it was actually the entire plan of God all along. See, the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 actually has a number of Gentile women mentioned in it. When you look at Matthew chapter 2, the wise men who come to worship Jesus are not Jews. They're pagans. They're, not, they're non-Jewish Gentiles as well. The Great Commission at the end of Matthew is a commission to Jesus' disciples to go into all the world of Gentiles and make disciples of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Jesus promises to be with them to the end of the day. Galilee was a region full of Gentiles as well, and it was despised by the Jews as being ungodly and full of non-Jewish influences. Yet Matthew's point here is that the kingdom of God first shines on unlikely people. Samaritans, Galileans, non-Jews, sinners whose cultures are completely devoid of the truth of God and under the shadow of spiritual death. But you know, when we look at this, we realize this is amazing, but isn't this actually God's pattern in dealing with people in this world? He doesn't call the self-righteous, but he calls all those who are lowly and absolutely broken and need his help. See, what's so different about Christianity is that, unlike most religions in the world, God does not come for the good, the moral, and the religious. In Christianity, God comes for the immoral, the not good people, the undeserving. The church of Jesus Christ is a church that is built on the foundation of people who are his enemies, who have been converted to be his disciples, and they reach an entire world full of drug addicts, people who are broken, people who have no hope in this world, who are not noble or in high places. Christianity was a religion that thrived amongst the poor and the lowly. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this about our condition apart from Jesus. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You know who Christianity is for? Christianity is for the spiritually dead. You know, you and I, according to the Bible, are the living dead. Like zombies are actually real, but they don't look like anything that people think they look like in the movies. They sit amongst us. They breathe the same air that we do. They go to work with us. All of us are disobedient dead enemies of the King of Kings of all the universe. But because of what Jesus has done for us on that cross, we were gifted redemption, salvation, and turned from death into life. And this message is not to be hoarded by Jews or hoarded by the Christian church, but it's actually to be spread throughout the entire world. It's a message for all people. We have no right as Christians to ever look at people and think, oh, like, I don't want you in the church. You'll ruin it. You know, my church is perfect. Why would you come in here and mess this thing up? If you think that in your mind, I would say, why are you here? You're less than perfect. Before you came, maybe the church was perfect. See, no Christian has the right to say that. The Church of Jesus Christ is for imperfect people, people who recognize their sinners and recognize their need for grace. The one commonality to Christians is not even that we speak the same language in this church, but that all of us, at one time or another, have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in a definitive decision to follow Him and to this day continue to keep that knee on the ground and bow down to Him in worship. Why would a Jewish Messiah begin preaching to Gentiles? It's because God's plan all along, throughout human history, was to save the entire world. Even his enemies, who did absolutely terrible things to him. You know, I remember an Egyptian friend of mine, faithful Christian, once telling me how much hope he found as a Christian reading the book of Isaiah. I never thought much about it at that time, but he had mentioned to me, do you realize that it was my ancestors, my ancestors, the Egyptians who once enslaved the Israelites, the people of God, and my people suffered under the wrath of God and brought the plagues on themselves and absolute destruction? And he said, do you know what gives me hope? He said, it's this in Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah 19 says this, Verse 18, in that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I remember my friend looking at me and saying, Sam, do you realize that God will call my people, the Egyptians, his people, after what they did to his people, the Israelites? You look at that, you go, how is that possible? And the answer to that, that the Old Testament never saw, was the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? A gift from a God who does not repay us according to our sins and undoes the work done even by His enemies, right? Unites all the nations of the world together and turns those who fought against each other into friends and brothers. You know what the hope is for Jerusalem in the Middle East right now? It's not politics. It's certainly not Donald Trump. The hope for the Middle East is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who will broker peace and allow people who once persecuted him to be his followers. Question, who is the kingdom of God for? According to the scriptures, it is for all people. People like you and me. And we should never take that for granted. Gentiles, strangers to the covenants of God's promise, lowly people who have nothing to God, no nobility to offer Him, no influence over the world to give Him, no governments that are underneath us to give Him, and yet He came for us. You know, God offers us this salvation not as an afterthought. We are not second best, but as His plan all along. That should encourage you, brothers and sisters. You want to have meaning in life? Know this, that you are first and foremost in the mind of the King of Kings when it came to His plan of salvation. You know, friends, Jesus is truly the light of the world. And light in this world, contrary to what our culture says, is not found by looking within, but by looking without and looking upwards to the King. You know, at the center of the human heart is not intellectual wisdom or light. is actually the opposite, a massive black hole of selfishness instead that consumes everything that comes close to it. I'm amazed when I look at some human beings and no matter how much good you show to them, they just seem to swallow it all up and are completely ungrateful. Black holes live in our hearts. But what's crazy is that when the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines on those human black holes, even black holes cannot escape from his light. And his light can actually consume the selfishness that lives at the center of human hearts. It's so opposite of anything else in this world. See, friends, do you realize that everything in this world rewards good people and passes over the inadequate, right? You go to an exam, you go for interviews, only if you make the cut do people consider taking you into a company, taking you into a school, or things of that sort. Bad students don't get scholarships. Criminals do not get adopted by the queen. But in God's kingdom, the lowliest, the dumbest, the least influential, the most inadequate in all society are the ones who are taken off the streets and shown mercy and turned into princes and princesses. It's marvelous. No one else does this. There's no example like this in our world. You know, some of you here who came to know Jesus literally lived under the darkness of a regime or a government that was effectively the shadow of death and would kill you if you dared to profess the name of Jesus or you said anything against that government some of you guys you know here instead were alcoholics or addicts and you were destroying yourselves with the things that you were doing to your own body some of you actually here were wounded and unloved by anyone and even thinking about taking your own life But when Jesus came for all of us, he freed us from the tyranny of governments that would kill us. He satisfied the thirstiness of the alcoholics, and he gave love and healing to those who needed it the most. Like, how can you not love a God who does that? You know, you look at that and you say, okay, I know this, yes, this sounds amazing. I've never heard this before, maybe you say, and may, I want this. The question is number three, last point here. Okay, how, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? What are the requirements? What are you to do? Well, how does this work? Look again at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, the text says, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's repentance. Do you know what repentance is, I'll put my definition up here for you. This is what I think repentance is, and I'll show you where I get it from. Repentance. Repentance, I think, is a God-given attitude of heartfelt grief over personal sin, a turning away from it, and a pursuit of obedience to God. That's what it is. Let me show you where I get this from in the Bible, okay? So first, it's a God-given gift. Talking about repentance, the Apostle Paul, Second Timothy, chapter two, verse twenty-five, speaking about elders here and why they should be gentle and correct their opponents kindly. He says, "God may perhaps grant them, the opponents of the Christian faith, repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth." So it's a gift from God. Okay. Number two, it's about heartfelt grief. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Okay? So, what is repentance? It's not about tearing your clothes and making a big show of like, I am so sorry for what I have done. It's about tearing your heart and letting God who sees the internals realize that you're absolutely broken before Him. Third thing, okay? Repentance is about turning away from your sin and seeking God. Okay? Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse fourteen says, If my people call by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, this is part of the package, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. See, true repentance, even if you read just the old testament. Has always been a 180 degree turn from the old way that you live towards a new way of living. It completely changes your life. A repentant life is a fruitful life. That's why John the Baptist speaking to people like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, talking to them about what repentance looks like, says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, a person who repents of their sin now has a life that's like a fruitful tree that yields fruit that is tasty for people to eat. It gives people, it flavors their mouths with things like love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, self-control, all these things that taste good in the eyes, in the mouths of a world that needs Jesus. An unrepentant sinner, on the other hand, is full of rotten fruit, things like anger or discord that brings ultimate harm to other people and does not lead them towards Christ. See, The repentance is actually the first step of true faith in Jesus. Don't think that it's a work, right? But it's if you have real faith in Jesus, you will repent and you will turn your life over to him. See, Christians live differently and they pursue God. That was the message of the Old Testament and that is the message of the New Testament as well. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins, but it's also this, that the kingdom of God is and his ruling reign has actually come, and repentance is how you get to participate as a child in this kingdom of God that is going to one day spread itself out over the entire earth. Repentance is how you get to be a child of the king who lives under his authority, his rule, and his domain. So the gospel isn't primarily about just getting away from hell or escaping his wrath. It's about being restored to a right relationship with the king forever and being in his kingdom. It's about a relationship. Now imagine this. Okay, an illustration. Imagine a husband. Who has hurt his wife by doing the absolute unthinkable by forgetting their wedding anniversary? Okay, now upon realizing it, the guy in his wisdom goes out and he buys you know a bouquet of really nice flowers, her favorite flowers, and then he gets a reservation for her at her favorite restaurant. Now, what he says to her as he comes with the gifts will make her break his time. Let me tell you first what he should not say to his wife in this moment. Dear, I'm so sorry, so I bought you flowers and a reservation at your favorite restaurant because I want you to be happy. When you're unhappy, the quality of dinners you cook goes down, and I feel bad when people are mad at me. Would you accept this gift So that I won't have to go hungry or feel tortured by my emotions. How do you think she'll feel? Some of you who are clueless about relationships, let me just tell you that is the wrong answer. Do not say that. What he should say is this. Sweetheart, I'm so sorry that I did not cherish our relationship by forgetting our anniversary. I love you very dearly, and I miss being close to you. Would you accept my apology and go out with me tonight to celebrate our wedding anniversary? Why is one answer sweet and the other answer stupid? And the reason is this. Because, see, in the first case, the husband repents in order to gain gifts. That is food, mental well-being, stress relief for himself. Whereas in the second case, the husband repents in order to have her. See, in the second case, what the guy wants is a restored relationship with his wife. It's not about dinner. What he cares the most about is to have this relationship back that has been damaged either by his stupidity or his sin. The first is about gifts, and the second is about having the giver. See, you need to understand this, because repentance is not an end; It's a means, and it's not a means to gifts. It's a means to a giver. And with God, right, it's the same thing. Why do we want to be Christians? Why do we want repentance It's not so we can feel better about ourselves, Ooh, like I'm so tired of being a sinner. It's not primarily about so we can gain money or prosperity from a higher being, or even to avoid the punishment of hell. Those are all scary things, and none of those things are wrong. But all of those things are secondary. See, repentance is the means primarily to a restored relationship with God. We repent so that we can get God. See, Christians want God because Christians love God, and God is primary in all things. That's why we repent, right? Even in our world, we understand this, right? How does love talk? Love says this. Love says, your desires before mine. Your schedule will determine my schedule. I will not participate in any relationships that will steal my love from you. And if I could just have one thing, one thing, it would be one more day with you. That's how love talks. Likewise, the Christian says, God, your desires before mine. Your schedule will determine my schedule. I will not get involved in any relationships that will cause me to dilute my love for you. And if I can have anything God in this world, I would have one more day with you. That's the Christian heart. This is why the psalmist can say this, right, in Psalm 84, verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. This is the heart of a Christian. If I can say anything about what the heart of a Christian is, is the heart of a Christian is a heart that loves God. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Question. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Through repentance. Repentance. <laughs> and faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. You know, friends, Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand or has drawn near and has come. And when he preached and he healed, the kingdom began reclaiming territory from the prince of darkness. See, the kingdom has already come, but the truth is, it is not yet fully consummated or complete yet. The final victory of the kingdom still lies actually in the future, but has been guaranteed by the cross of Jesus Christ. We live right now in this strange time of the in-between. You know, Oscar Coleman was a famous theologian and pastor who described this already and not yet strangeness of the kingdom of God, this experience, as the difference, he said, between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. You know, on June 6, 1944, the Allies landed 150,000 soldiers on the beaches of Normandy and stormed the German fortifications. And because the Germans failed to repel them, what happened was that Nazi Germany's doom was actually sealed. In fact, the generals and the army knew that they were defeated, but Hitler refused and wanted to continue fighting on. German, the German officers, who were so understanding of what was going on and that there was no chance of them winning anymore, even tried to assassinate Hitler with a bomb in a briefcase one month later to stop the madman's reign and hoping to prevent further bloodshed. They knew that they had absolutely lost. But the point is, the war didn't end until one year later when on V-Day or Victory Day, it was all over, and the peace treaties were signed. And here's the point. Although D-Day guaranteed and sealed the defeat of Nazi Germany, it wasn't until V-Day or Victory Day when the war was actually over. Now, when you think about Christianity, that's exactly the same thing. The cross of Jesus Christ was D-Day for Satan and his kingdom. At the cross, Jesus destroyed disease, death, sin, and all the darkness of this world absolutely forever. And he established a beachhead here on this earth for the kingdom of God. And through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, King Jesus is raising up an army for himself of spiritual soldiers and warriors who have been redeemed from the kingdom of death, and are now fighting instead for His kingdom. So everywhere a true church is planted, what we should think of churches as is actually a military outpost for the spiritual kingdom of Christ. And it's from these kingdoms, from these outposts, that are beacons of light and hope in a dying world, that we as Christians launch campaigns into this world. Campaigns in which we fight the good fight, but not a fight of violence or hatred or killing, but a battle of unrelenting love and kindness, affection and mercy. When we go out as Christians and we heal the sick, we take care of the wounded, we befriend the friendless, when we feed the hungry, when we love the unlovable and we do good to those who have done evil to us, what we are doing actually is bringing the gospel light to this world and seeing the kingdom of God grow and take over the territory of the evil one instead. See, Satan has been defeated, and we live between D-Day and V-Day right now, and we have the privilege of being a part of this kingdom and seeing it grow over the whole earth. You know, I love the lyrics of that song that we just sang that Kevin led us in, King of Kings. And the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath, till that stone was moved for good, for the Lamb has conquered death. And the dead rose from the tombs, and the angels stood in awe, awe for the souls of all who come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom, I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. See, this is why we love Jesus, Christians. Friends, if you're not a believer here in Jesus Christ, let me just tell you that Jesus Christ offers to you forgiveness of your sins and hope, actually, of a new life with him in his kingdom. You know, the kingdom is for all people who are willing to bow the knee to him and come before him and say, I am a sinner, I am in need of your grace. God, would you make me a new person? I'm so tired of living the way that I have lived in the past. Would you make me new? Heal my wounds that no doctor and people in this world can heal and give me new life. You know, if that's you, I would say this is the most important decision you could ever make. Would you not turn over your life to King Jesus? You know, for those of us who are Christians here, and maybe we've not thought about this much. We've not thought about the gospel being forgiveness and a restoration to a relationship with God that doesn't just get us out of hell, but brings us into his kingdom. You know, are we in it, this Christianity thing, simply so that we are, because we're afraid of punishment, or is it because we love God? And what we want most and above all else in this world is to be restored to a relationship with Him. Is the reward of heaven the ability to eat and not have to work, you know, to pay for your bills anymore, or is it God Himself that you treasure? You know, every time, brothers and sisters, we go out and we labor for the King that we love, as we serve the poor, as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ... (laughs) you realize that what we are doing is making the invisible kingdom of God visible to a world that needs Him. Why do we want to be in the kingdom? Why do we want forgiveness of our sins? It's because we want God. We want God who is our ultimate hope, our ultimate joy and peace. And the God who loves us sent His very own Son to die on the cross for our sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, God, for allowing us to enter the kingdom of heaven. We don't deserve this at all, God, but because of your great love, God, you freed us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father in heaven, I just ask, God, that we as Christians would cherish this and think deeply, God, about you And that we would say, God, out of love for you in response to what you have done, your will be done in our lives. Your schedule will determine my schedule. I can go through anything, God, in this life and suffer, oh Lord, because you did it for me. Father, I pray if there are people here who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today will be the hour, oh God, in which they realize their need for you. Let them not leave this place, God, without making a decision to be your follower. So Father, we thank you so much that the kingdom of God has come, the enemy has been defeated, and we long and wait for that final day that has been guaranteed, V-Day, Victory Day, when the kingdom will be complete. And in that day, our joy too will be complete. So we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.